There we go. Good morning. <laughs> Hear the word of the Lord from Mark 1, verse 1 through 13. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John wore a camel camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandal. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals and the angels were serving him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Start going through uh, the book of Mark. Um, we're going to take our time, just really explore what the Lord has there uh, in the scriptures for us. Uh, this series is going to be called The Gospel of the Kingdom. The Gospel of the Kingdom. And so I'm excited to, to start working through a gospel. I just, oh, something's, we good? We good? We good, okay. Um, I just think it's something special about reading through the life of Jesus. It captures our heart in a way uh, that other uh, scriptures might not. And so I'm just excited to get through there. Um, one of the, the things that we can see in the beginning of the Gospels, we can see this, this character trait of Jesus, um, this character trait of humility. We can see this character trait of humility in Jesus. And humility is not often what we uh, would uh, mesh with leadership. But in reality, when we see a leader who is humble, a leader who is calling us to do things that he or her himself would do, that makes us more willing to follow that leader. And so we see Jesus, the perfect man, walking through steps of repentance, which should confuse us somewhat, right? He actually is the only one who doesn't need repentance. But we see him humbling himself in this baptism, he is, is demonstrating what he's asking us to do. In other words, the humility of Christ should re- produce repentance in us. The humility of Christ should produce repentance in us. Let's ask the Lord to help. Father, would you please open up your word to us? Speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Show us how to obey you and to honor you and to be grateful for all that you have done for us. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we see in the first couple of verses that Jesus is the long-awaited Savior. Verse 1, it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. A voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. The interesting thing about the gospel of Mark is that Mark does not waste time. If you notice, there's no, it's not like how he was born. There's no like pre-story about Jesus. See, Mark, he's like, I need to get to the meat and potatoes of what you need to understand. And what we'll find is as we move the gospel of Mark, it's action-packed. Like Jesus does this, then does this, then does this. It's, the idea is that it's leading us on this journey to see what Jesus has done for us. It's actually demanding a response from us, Not that we're just listening to a story about Jesus, but that we're listening to a story that actually elicits a, a, a response of obedience from us. And it begins, this is the beginning of the gospel. That's a word that we use a lot, but that we do not define as often. The word gospel, it's a declaration of victory over enemies. Gospel, in, in its really most simple terms, it means good news. Good news. In Old English, it was, it was, it was good spell, right? Good. It's good news. And what you think about good news, I want you to think about this. Think, you know, before internet, before your phone, uh, and before, like, newspapers, maybe your country was at war, and you were hoping that your country won so that you wouldn't be taken over, right? And you see somebody running towards your city, and he has this message, and everybody's waiting in anticipation to see him running down, down the road. What is he going to say? What is he going to say? And then you begin to hear faintly, victory, victory, victory. And it becomes louder and louder and louder. And then you realize, oh, man, man, we actually, the ones who are under attack, we have won. There is this good news from the battlefront that has come to us that even though we had fear about our enemies, that they would take us over. No, what has happened instead is that we have won and we have been protected. So he starts off his gospel saying, listen, listen, this is a story about a victory that you may not know, but you need to understand so that you can respond appropriately. This is a story about how Jesus defeats our enemies. This is a story about about conquest. See, listen, when we look at the world, the Bible says that the world is under the snare of sin and Satan. You know, a lot of times when I'm preaching, I feel, feel like sometimes I'm a bearer of bad news because I'm trying to talk about the realities of what's going on in this world. You know, when we, when we watch the news, when we have conversations, I mean, even I can't tell you some of the bad news I've had this week alone. People who are making decisions that will change the trajectory of their life negatively for years and years. And when we open our eyes and and we pay attention and we see the stories of struggle and frustration, we know that this world is under the dominion of sin and Satan. And so we need someone to deliver us. And what the book of Mark is about is that there has been someone who has come who can deliver us, take us from this dominion and domain of darkness where there seems there's little hope and give us joy and hope for a future. 
This is a story about conquest. This is a story about the shared spoils of victory. When you win a battle, usually you get a prize, right? Now, if you're, if you're, if you're battling about some land, if you won, then the land is yours. You know, usually when, when warriors would come back from a battle, they would come with, with gold. They would come with, with, with things to distribute and say, hey, let me, let me show you how we won. Let me show you that we won. Let me show you all these good things that, that we have gotten from this victory. In the Gospel of, of Mark, we see that Jesus has won the greatest spiritual battle, and he gives us the spoils of freedom, of joy, of peace, of forgiveness of sins, this battle that we didn't have anything to do with, but he by himself has won. He comes and shares the spoils of that victory. Now, Mark is doing something real subtle in the beginning. If you look at verse 2 and 3, he's talking about there's going to be one, that's going to be, there's going to be a messenger that I send ahead of you, you prepare your way. And then in verse 3, it says, he will prepare the way for the Lord. Now, he's going on to say that this is about John the Baptist preparing a way for Jesus. But if you, if you paid attention, if you, if you were really familiar with the Old Testament, if you were a Jewish person studying the Old Testament, and you say, well, John is preparing the way for Yahweh. John is preparing the way for the Lord, the King, the God of, of all creation, the maker of heaven and earth. John is, is preparing the way not for like a, a, a junior uh, uh, king, but actually the Lord of heaven and earth. This is who John is preparing the way for. And he is very suddenly going, hey, let me tell you something. This Jesus, this man that you see, he's not just a man. He's not just a servant. He's not just a really, really good servant. He actually is the Lord God himself in the flesh. You know, a lot of times it, when we're talking about um, Christianity and some of the false beliefs that are around us, they always seem to revolve around the person of Jesus. So, so there are some who would teach that Jesus, he isn't like really God. He's like, he's like half man and half God, like Hercules. He's like a little bit of God, a little bit of man, but he's not exactly one or the other. He's not fully, not, not really, truly God. But we have to remember the scripture says that Jesus says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That the gospel from the get-go is making this claim that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. What's beautiful is that when God wants to save us, he doesn't send a really good man. He doesn't send uh, an awesome angel. He comes himself. That, listen, when, when you come yourself, you are demonstrating the love that you have for that person. Like, I'm going to cut out some time on my schedule to come and do this really difficult work because I want to be near to the one that I love. And so, so we need to be attentive to the word of the Lord so that we know how to receive the king of glory. The reality is there's always a proclamation for, before the king or some important person comes. Like, for instance, if the president of the United States decides to come to Greenville, we're probably going to know about it. And matter of fact, if he decides to drive down your street, you're really going to know about it because Secret Service is going to be all up in your business talking about, don't you come out your house, don't do nothing crazy. All right? It means actually you need to get your mind right. You need to prepare yourself because there's someone of great importance that is coming. And guess what? Guess what? If you don't prepare yourself appropriately, they're not going to come. If they, listen, listen. If, if there was a plan for some government official to come to Greenville and then it came out that there was actually some threat, oh, man, the trip changes. 
It is so important that that if we are going to receive the king of all kings, that we prepare ourselves properly. Does anybody want Christ to be near in your life? Anybody want that? I, I need him. I want him to be near, which means I have to tune my ears and say, Lord, what is the, the method of preparation that I need to have so that Jesus Christ is near to me? How do I prepare my heart to receive him? Because I need his presence like I need air. I need him to come near to me. And what we see in verse 4 through 6 is that the way to prepare to meet God is through repentance. Look at verse 4. John came baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. You get a weird verse. John wore a, a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So let's explain that. What is going on? Well, first we see that the representative sent to repair the way of the Lord God himself came preaching repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is a couple of things. One is it's acknowledging areas where we have fallen short of God's commands. That is a really awkward thing to do. I don't, I don't know about y'all. So sometimes, so the person, if you're married, the person who probably knows you the best is your spouse. Have you ever been in a situation where you got into a disagreement and you knew you was wrong? You know, like, you maybe, you started the, 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 the conversation, you're like, I might be right. But as the conversation went on, you're like, oh, man, I'm wrong. You know how awkward that feels? You ever hear, like, well, 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 what I said was I didn't really mean, you know, like, it's, it's really awkward when, when, you're, when you are faced with your shortcomings. It is, it is a vulnerable and naked place to be. You kind of want to, oh, I don't want to. I don't want, to, want you to see all my weakness, but, but here I am. That's what repentance. Repentance is saying, listen, I'm, I'm letting God see the weakest part of me, and I'm realizing that I'm wrong. That, that is a painful, and, and, and it's an experience that exposes. But it's what God is calling us to. Not only is repentance acknowledging areas where we fall short, it is a commitment and a plea to follow God and his commands. Notice I said a commitment and a plea. I don't know about you. Sometimes when I'm talking to the Lord, I'm like, I'm going to do better. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, but can you please help me, though? Because if you don't help me do better, I'm not going to do better. <laughs> like, like it's a, it's, I'm committed to do this. Thing. I'm committed to follow you, God. But Lord, I, I need your help. It's a, plea, it's a commitment and a plea. Lord, I, I want to do better, but if your power is not coming, I can't. So, Lord, I, I commit to do this, but also would you give me power to obey you? You see, the whole Judean countryside is coming saying, we're wrong. We, we, we have not measured up to God's commands. And we are confessing that publicly. It's not like they were in their room talking to God secretly. Everybody who's coming to get baptized is saying, hey, I'm wrong. Everybody, you need to know this. I have fallen short. I have not lived the life that God wanted me to live. That is repentance when it is public and clear that I have done wrong and I need to fess up to this. See, the baptism of John the Baptist, it, it, it shows that we need cleansing. When something's dirty, you use water to clean it, right? 
if something's dirty, that you have to. So, so imagine this. There are droves of people coming to hear John the Baptist preach, and they're saying, we are dirty. We need to be cleansed. The, my, my heart is, is, is dirty with, with this sin and this anger and this lust, and I, we need to be cleansed. See, baptism is this acknowledgement. I'm dirty and I need to be cleansed. It's, it's a humble thing to do. But what I love is, is John the Baptist is not just telling them to grovel, because the, the, the command comes with the promise. He says, baptize, get baptized for what? For the forgiveness of your sins. No one was unclear about if they would be forgiven. No one was like, I'm about to come and confess my sins openly and tell everybody I'm dirty, and maybe, maybe God will accept me. No, that, that, was, not, that was not the agreement. No, no, you come humbly, repenting, open and honest about all of the faults that you have. You confess that to God, and there is no question mark of if he is going to accept you or not. There is this assurance. And beloved, I want you to have insurance. I want you to have assurance. The, the, the reality is this. I know from experience, there are some times when you sin, when you're like, in the back of your head, you're like, I don't know if God's got me this time. And maybe it's not verbalized, but there's a, there's a cloud of guilt that follows you. There's a cloud of guilt. You're like, I, I didn't ask for forgiveness, but that was 10 days ago, and I still feel real bad. Or maybe it's deep. Maybe it's like, man, that was four years ago, to five, ten years ago, and I just, that still haunts me. That is evidence that you have not received the assurance of the forgiveness of sins. And that is a promise for you. That you would not be like, well, maybe, I don't, no, no, no. That you would know. That, that's one of the, like, if y'all don't memorize any verse, I hope y'all memorize that verse in the beginning of, the, of our service. If anyone sins, we have a what? An advocate with the Father that he maybe will forgive. That's not what it says. That he will forgive us. That he will cleanse us. Why do I harp on that? But because the reason I harp on that is because our conscience is fickle. We're, We're shaky sometimes. And you need to understand that there is this hard truth that if you confess your sins, you do not have to doubt. You don't have to guess. But there is a promise of forgiveness and acceptance. And now we got to get to that weird verse in verse 6. What is John doing? Wearing camel hair and eating locusts. I don't know. I feel like if I was wearing camel hair and eating locusts, I don't know if you'd be coming to my church. What is this man doing? The reality is like the camel, you're like, what does that have to do? It's like he was wearing scratchy clothes on purpose. That's what's going on. And I don't think he was eating locusts because he just liked locusts. He's actually demonstrating something. John practiced something called self-denial to exemplify repentance. What repentance is, is is turning away from selfishness to God. It's, It's denying what you actually want to do and saying, actually, I want to do something else. And John's clothing and diet represented his training an example of self-denial. See, here's the deal. One of the reasons that, that we talk about spiritual disciplines and spiritual formations is the fact that, you know, every day when you wake up, you probably, not every day, like, man, I would love to read my Bible today. Sometimes you're like, I got to get this to the stuff I need to do, right? I got to do the thing. 
Or maybe every day you're like, I don't need to spend a lot of time in prayer. I got this, that, and the other. What you're doing is when you decide to say yes to Jesus, even though you don't want to, you are training yourself in something called self-denial. And that skill of self-denial is what's going to help you say no to sin. If you never have a practice of denying yourself of what you want, you will have nothing to pull from when it's time to fight sin. If all your life you're like, whatever I want to do, I just do it immediately. That moment when it's, I want to do what's wrong, you know, there's no muscle built. There has been no muscle built to say no. And, and John the Baptist is saying, listen, listen, I'm preaching repentance, but I'm also demonstrating it. I'm demonstrating that, that I will practice self-denial. What I love is he's, he's preaching something that, that he himself is exemplifying. Let's, let's move on. Verse 7, we see that Christ immerses us in God. Verse 7, John, John the Baptist, he proclaimed, one who is more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What I love is that John understands that he is simply a messenger. I don't know how I would feel if the whole city of Greenville was coming to hear me preach. I'd like to think I'd be humble, but I don't know. Let's just keep it 100. I don't know. John the Baptist has the whole countryside. like, let me come hear him preach. He's got the megachurch, right, in the country. They're all driving from Oswald to come and see him. But his role and his platform did not go to his head. Because the greatest in the kingdom is a servant. Listen, no matter how much notoriety or how much favor we get, we cannot let that bolster our own sense of worth. Because John understood that everything that is good is given by God. And in, in, in the book of John, there's a, there's a point in John's ministry where people start to switch, right? John's telling them, hey, you got to follow this other guy. And then the other guy, Jesus, shows up and they start doing it. <laughs> And John's disciples like, hey, John, they are all following Jesus. Your ministry is shrinking, John. John says, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. That, that's crazy to think about because we know that John worked hard. I mean, he's up here wearing scratchy clothes and eating bugs. He could easily have said, I worked hard to gain this. I put in the work that my ministry is big. I put in the work that people would know that I sacrificed for the Lord. But he's saying, no, no, no. Anything good, any notoriety, any benefit, any compliment, it is all given from above. How can you brag about what is a gift? It's given by somebody else. There's no room for pride in ministry or in service. And John demonstrates that. Because he understands that Christ is the one who gives us what we really need. Christ immerses us in the Spirit. That's that word baptize. Another, a really clear way, dip, immerse. It's like you're in the water, you're on top of the water, and you get all in the water. John, in his ministry of baptism, is giving us a picture of what Jesus will do. Just like when you go down in the water, water's everywhere. It's all around you. You can't escape it. You're touching it all the time. He's saying that picture is what Jesus does for his followers with the Holy Spirit. And the question is, why would we want that? Why would we want to be immersed 
in the Holy Spirit. I, there's a couple of verses that I want to bring to your attention that I think would explain that. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Anybody want to be immersed in that? You want to be immersed in that? I, I want to be immersed in some love and joy and peace, yeah? In Romans 14, 17, it says, For the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's saying, listen, what you truly long for, what you, that satisfaction, that peace, that, 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 that rightness you're looking for in the world is actually provided by God's presence. And Jesus himself can provide that for you. This, this gift is actually what everybody is seeking. All of the arguments that we have in the public sphere are, are arguments about this, about we all want the good stuff and we disagree about how to get the good stuff. But we all agree we want the good. And sometimes we defi- define the good differently, but, but everybody's defining it like they want love, they want joy, they want peace, they want righteousness. They're defining it differently, but everybody's in agreement that we want that. Nobody is, is like gaining followers like, do you want a worse life? Nobody's gaining followers like that. Everybody's making promises like the better life that you are seeking, you can get if you follow me. And the reality is, should we not allow the one who can actually give the good to define what the good is? If, he, if, if, if God can actually give you the good, he should also be the one to define it, to define what is good, what is right. He should be able to define these standards because he's the one who can actually give it. So John's saying, listen, that, that good, that peace, that joy, that, that, that thing that your heart longs for, that, that it aches for, at its deepest core level, it can be given to you by the presence of God. Look, there's one coming that is mightier than I. I can't even tie his shoes because he can actually give you what your heart truly longs for. In this next couple of verses, it should confuse you a little bit. Christ came to identify with sinners for our salvation. Look at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. As soon as he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I'm well pleased. Now, first question. Baptism, John's preaching his baptism, like, hey, all those people who need to repent, y'all come get baptized. Then Jesus Christ shows up. In other gospels, John is like, wait, wait a minute. I know why everybody else is here, because everybody else jacked up. What are you doing? <laughs> Jesus, why is you getting baptized? You, you didn't do anything wrong. Why would you show up? Everybody's getting baptized, confessing their sins. Christ has no sin to confess. What in the world is he doing getting baptized? The beauty is that he wants to identify with sinners. The perfect and holy one is not ashamed of you. One of the things that Jesus would always, always get, get criticized about, they say, Jesus, you eat with sinners. They would say it all the time, Jesus, you're hanging out with sinners. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, these sinners that you look down on, I'm not ashamed of them. I will keep company with them. There are times when you look at yourself and you feel like if they knew what I really have done, they wouldn't even be near me. But you can't say that about Christ. Because he's known every single thing you've done. 
And nevertheless, he says, I'm going to be near you. I'm not afraid to be associated with you. I'm not afraid to be seen at the lunch table with you. I want to be near you. And what I love is that they give these, these signs so that he gets baptized. And if you were looking at him get baptized, you could assume, well, maybe he sinned, right? If everybody else come in here confessing sin, he came and get baptized, maybe he did something wrong. And God brought some signs just so nobody was confused, right? <laughs> just so nobody's confused why Jesus, Jesus is not getting baptized because he's jacked up, right? Like, he see, the Holy Spirit is coming down in the form of a dove. The heavens are opening up. Nobody's looking over here going, well, I guess he jacked up. No, God's like, let me make sure you understand who he is. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit was given to God's appointed leader. And he was like, listen, this one, this one who was identifying you, he is the appointed leader of my people. Not only that, you have the Father's uh, commendation, this declaration of love. This is my son that I love. This declaration of innocence and moral perfection. I am well pleased with him. He has not done anything that makes you go, oh, no, no. Everything that he's done, everything that he is, I am so pleased with this, and I'm going to perform this miracle just so you know. Now, what I want you to see in this picture, and I, and I, want, I want this picture of Jesus' baptism to, to burn in your imagination. Here's why. This looks at the anticipated exchange of status. Let me explain. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, he, it says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's what I want you to see. Jesus Christ in baptism is identifying completely and wholly with your sin. It's a, it's a preview of the cross, is it not? It's a preview of the cross. But here's, a, here's the craziest thing. It's not just that our sin is put on Christ. That's not the only part. But that his righteousness then gets put on us. So listen, when you're having a bad day and you're, feel, you're feeling real guilty, you're feeling real ashamed, I want you to imagine the scene of Jesus' baptism. I want you to imagine the Spirit coming on Jesus like a dove. And I want you to imagine that voice saying, I am well pleased. But here's the deal. Because of what he's done, instead of Jesus standing there, it's you. And the Father looks at you. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. I am well pleased with you. You see that exchange of, of status? That the, the sin that, that I have done has been put on Christ? And the status, the commendation, the love, even the declaration of moral perfection gets put on me. And so when I go in God's presence, I'm not confused about what he thinks about me. Not because I have a really good record, but because Jesus has a really good record. He is traded with me. And I can come to God's presence and know that he says, I love you. I am satisfied with you. I delight in you. You please me. That's what you can hear, beloved. That's what you can hear. In the last couple of verses, we see that Christ endured temptation and hardship for us. In verse 12, it says, immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and the angels were serving him. What is going on right here? But the Holy Spirit led Christ to the place of battle and testing for us. 
you'll see in the scripture that the wilderness has this common theme. The wilderness is the place of testing. It's the place of battle. And there's some really, really key uh, uh, things that have happened in the wilderness in the Old Testament. The first place of testing actually is the garden, right? Where Adam, uh, God says to Adam, you can have everything you want except this one tree, the knowledge of good, good and evil. You can have everything you want. And in that place of testing, Adam failed. Not only that, we just did this series looking at uh, the life of Moses, and the people are in the wilderness, in the place of testing, and they are consistently failing, yeah? They're com- consistently complaining, doubting, being frustrated, bickering, arguing. They are in the place of testing, and they are failing. Now, it's real easy to look at Adam and look at Israel and be like, what's wrong with y'all? But the reality is when we are in the place of testing, when the rubber meets the road, when, when, when our life is shook up, where we're in the place of, 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 of feeling abandoned, we also fail the test. Yet, in Christ, we see one who goes to the place of testing, the place of isolation, the place of battle, and comes out victorious. Every single one of us has failed the test, but Christ Jesus succeeds. And he doesn't just succeed for himself. He succeeds in our place. And every place that we have fell, it's like Jesus did a redo for us. We took the test, we got a zero. Jesus says, let me get that test for you. Let me take it for you. Let me get that hundred for you. I'm going to give it to you. He then gives us his record of obedience. This is so important. I hammer on this a lot because you need to understand that in Christ, your status for God is not neutral. It's not that you're neutral. It's that you have all of the works of Christ in your account. It's not like God's looking at you like, yeah, you can come, it's cool. No, he's like, no, no, you have all the merits, all the work, all the successes of Christ Jesus. Come to me. That is the great exchange that we have in the gospel. And we can see that Christ endured the temptations of Satan and the hardships of this world. You know, the, the, real, the, the real battle, so interesting, you think about spiritual battle, I don't know what you think, maybe a lot of things come to your head. Maybe you think about like angels fighting, uh, maybe you think about yelling really loud, I don't know, you might have a lot of different views of what you think. But the, the, the case study of spiritual battle is Christ fasting and praying in the wilderness. That's him doing battle. See, the, the, the Christian's spiritual battle is to bring yourself under the control of God. It's not so much that you got to fight something out there. You have to fight something in your own heart. That is where the real spiritual battle takes place. And what I love is this. Look, Jesus, as a man, he is feeling all of the temptations of Satan. He's hungry. He's tired. Yet he relies upon God and Christ received help from God because he relied on him. She did that last part. The angels were ministering to him. I bet y'all like, I wish angels ministered to me. <laughs> like, would that be nice? If I'm, I'm going through this hard time and angels are helping me out. Well, guess what? The Bible says they are. Hebrews 1.14 says, angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation. Translation, angels serve Christians is the translation. Angels serve Christians. 
So you feel like you're going through it. And you're like, God, will you please send me some help? Man, if he would just open your spiritual eyes for a minute, you would see this vast army helping you. There's this time in the Old Testament where um, Elisha, he's, he's at his house, and there's this big old army around him. And his assistant's like, yo, Elisha, are you scared? There's a big army about to come get you. And he goes, man, it's cool. Like, great. we have more people. And he's looking out like, ain't nobody over here. It's just me and you, and there's an army. All right, why are you not scared? What is going on? And then he said, Lord, open his eyes. And when the Lord opened his eyes, he saw this army of flaming chariots. And he's like, oh, I see why you're calm now. We actually do have more than they do. Beloved, if our eyes were open, we would see God providing all the help over and above the help that we need. Even when you are struggling, understand that God has provided help for you as you rely on him. There's so much packed in this this first couple of verses, but, but we get this idea that Christ lived a life of hardship that culminated in the cross. One of the weirdest things that I find about the creed that we say every week, it says, I believe in Jesus Christ, Son of God, and then, 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 you know, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and the very next thing it says is he suffered. He was born, suffered. Like, I'm like, what about, is there no gap? <laughs> like, born, suffered. That's illustrating something for us. The sufferings of Christ didn't start on the cross. It didn't even start in the wilderness. The sufferings of Christ started when the infinite God became man. The one who had no limitations limited himself. And his whole life is one of hardship. Why? Why? So that his sacrifice on the cross would be acceptable. Because he prepared himself through self-denial and obedience his whole entire life. When you see Christ on the cross, you also need to see that 33 years of preparation to be a perfect sacrifice. Can you imagine Christ as a kid listening to his mom? Why does he listen to his mom? Because he has a down across. Christ, as a teenager, there's all these quarrels going on, people fighting, people calling people each other's names. Christ is, is, is being silent. Why? Because he has a down across. Christ, as a, as a 20-something-year-old, seeing all of his friends, they're doing all this stuff that would lust and stuff, and why does he deny himself? Because he has to be a perfect sacrifice. Christ, his whole life is preparing for the moment where he takes on your sin. That's the Savior that we have. And not only that, Christ has carved a path of spiritual battle for us. The reality is we are all in a spiritual war, but Christ sets the framework for what that looks like. Look, we battle not through shouting really loud. We battle through submission. I can't tell you how many times people are asking me, what should I do with my life? And I'll say, well, did you obey what's clear? <laughs> did you, like, I know you want to know the secret, you know, maze of your life, but did, did you stop sleeping with your girlfriend? You know, like, I, I know you want to, oh, yeah, you want need the mysteries of what's going on, but did you stop lying? Like, like there's, oh, we have to obey the clear commands that we would submit ourselves to him. That is the war. Holiness is warfare. As our Savior Christ did in his efforts to be holy and pure, that is how he is defeating Satan. And he's given us this path. Yeah? 
Listen, we, we battle through self-denial. Remember, John the, like John the Baptist didn't have to go around eating bugs and wearing scratchy clothes. And listen, I ain't telling you to do that because I'm not about to do that, okay? I'm not about to wear scratchy clothes and eat bugs. But here's the deal. He did give us this example that we battle through self-denial. So it's obvious that you would say no when something's sinful, but there's some things that might be neutral that you still should say no to. Let me explain. Think of uh, some of the worst punishment. You know, the worst punishment in prison is what? Solitary. Solitary confinement. You don't want to be by yourself. Yet Jesus is willingly going to be by himself for 40 days. Why? Why? He is practicing self-denial. One of the ways that we battle in the spiritual life is we battle through silence and solitude. This is the, real, the reality is we can distract ourselves a lot. We are distracted constantly. But when we set aside time to go be quiet and to go be with the Lord, what's really in us comes out. And one of the reasons we're afraid of true solitude is because we're afraid of ourselves. We're afraid of the reality of who we are. But only in that moment can the Lord deal with us. How do we battle? We battle through prayer. I don't know what Jesus is praying about for 40 days, but I can only imagine that he's pouring out his soul as he thinks about the ministry that he has to do, as he's thinking about the people who will reject him, as he's thinking about the sufferings that he's going to endure, and finally, as he's thinking about the cross. I imagine he is being brutally honest with God. Because I know that the day before he was crucified, he said, I don't want to do this. I imagine he's being brutally honest and that he's praying out of desperation. That's spiritual battle. And not only this, we, we battle through silence and solitude, we battle through prayer, and we battle through fasting. When you fast, when you say, I'm not going to eat food for, for a while, you're saying, I need you, Lord, more than I need food. I need you, Lord, more than I need bread. John Wesley, the great Methodist pastor, said, he said he would not ordain a man unless he fasted twice a week. That's hardcore, ain't it? I'm glad he didn't ordain me because I wouldn't have been ordained. <laughs> but the reality is he placed a high importance on it. So you want to do spiritual battle? That's how you do it. You walk in submission. You seek silence and solitude. You pray and you fast. And you will have this help from the spirit of the living God. And you will be able to walk in victory. All of this is available because Jesus, our Savior, has walked this path ahead of us. And guess what? As you're seeking him, as you're doing spiritual battle, he has promised to immerse you in the spirit, to immerse you in love and joy and peace and kindness and patience, righteousness, joy. That is what he's promised to us. And that is what is bought for us on the cross. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you suffered for us that you demonstrated what it is to live a life of holiness and consecration. So, Lord, would you help us to follow in your footsteps, and would you empower us with the Spirit? Lord, God, I pray that we would be a congregation that, um, that really rejoices in, in being holy, that really rejoices um, in self-denial, not for self-denial's sake, but, Lord, you have promised rewards for those who diligently seek you. So Lord, enable us by the Spirit to diligently seek you. In Jesus' name, amen.